So if you remember, we are looking at things slightly out of sequence because I wanted to be sure you had time to read that text on the ends not justifying the means. But that's what we're looking at today, how the end doesn't justify the means. And this is a big, big principle. Yes, so I'm presuming you've all heard this phrase before, the end doesn't justify the means. Often you will more likely have heard it on TV and such as the very opposite, that, well, the end justifies the means. Uh, someone's going to do something horrible and they say, well, the end justifies the means. Um, so, in summary, what are we saying here? Um, well... You've got something you're going to do. Now, how do you know whether it's good or bad? Well, the Catechism says um, there are three sources of morality. There is the object, it's called, which is less precisely the means. Um, then there is the end which we might also call the intention. And then there are the circumstances. Um. <coughs> so there are some things that might be right, but the circumstance isn't appropriate. Um. So, for a man and, a, and his wife to have sex, fine, but to do it out in the parking lot, the circumstance, yeah, makes a big difference. Um, the intention. Now, there are lots of things we might intend something good, but that doesn't mean you can do something evil to get there. That's the, the question we're looking at in this whole discussion. So... Um, let's imagine um, we've got some end we're trying to get to and we choose a means to get there now if we look back to my eye here this is you yeah, looking and thinking or more precisely, you would say your will is choosing. Now, there's a mistaken way of imagining this that imagines that really all you choose is the end. But actually, you don't only choose the end. You also choose how you're going to get there. You choose the means to the end. That means if you choose an evil means, you are choosing evil. So if we use the phrase moral evil, what that means is willing evil.
So if that tree falls over and kills somebody, that would be a random bit of physical evil. But if I want it to happen, if I will it to happen, then that's what we call moral evil. And so the basic principle is you can never will evil to happen. We are made for good, we're made to be good, we're made to do good. So when you're choosing an end, you've got to choose a good end means to get to the end. And your action has to be good in respect to each of these three aspects of it. It's both got to be aiming at something good, both got to do something good as a means to get there, and the circumstance have to make it appropriate good as well. So, after this we're going to go have lunch. Now let's imagine somebody has poisoned the baked beans. And everything else in there is fine. But on my plate there is my piece of chicken, my salad leaves, and the baked beans. Now I eat the whole. So the fact that one bit is poisoned means my meal is poisoned. I, I choose the whole, I eat the whole. So it's not just that um, somehow the whole matters. If one bit of it's poisoned, my meal is poisoned. So it's kind of, as an analogy, it's the same with this. If one bit is evil, well, you will, you choose the whole package. Therefore, what you choose, what you will, is evil. So it's not just enough for one bit of it to be good. If one bit's evil and you're willing each bit of it, then you're willing evil. So this would be phrased, one defect and the whole is evil. You know, one bit is evil, the whole is evil. Because you choose the whole and you choose the bits that make up the whole. So to rob a bank because you want money, well, wanting money is not a bad thing, but robbing a bank as a means to get to the end is wrong. Do you understand the general principle of what we're going to be looking at today? Okay, so let's look more precisely at the lecture notes. So let's turn to page one here. Now I've put what are called key notions one, two, and three. And basically this is um, all from the catechism, but rephrasing the same thing three different ways, which is one way in a sense of helping to understand it, making sure we've got the point. So the key notion one, there are some things that simply you can never do, or never morally do. And such acts are called intrinsically evil acts. 
approaching Pope John Paul II in his encyclical Veritatis Splendor, in teaching the existence of intrinsically evil acts, the Church accepts the teaching of sacred scripture. So what's the Pope doing there? He's saying, this isn't just me, this isn't just the Church, we are accepting what the Bible tells us. So Josh, can you read that quotation from the Bible there? So this is 1 Corinthians, at the top of the page. Sorry. Do you know? Do you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor sexual perverts, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor robbers will inherit the kingdom of God. So in this context, the point to note is that St. Paul isn't saying that... um, He's just listing a whole bunch of activities and saying the people that do that will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's not saying, well, it depends on the circumstances. He's not saying, well, it depends if they've got a good intention or not. No, he's saying these activities are wrong in themselves. This is what we call an intrinsically evil act. So, um, adultery. You want to make the woman happy, so you have sex with her even though she's someone else's husband, um, married to somebody else. Um, So just wanting to make someone happy doesn't mean you can do something wrong to make them happy. And obviously if we're thinking properly happy, we need to define pretty clearly anyway, which we'll kind of come on to later when we think about virtue. Okay. Key notion two, as I phrase it, one may not do evil so that good may result from it. It's never lawful, even for the gravest of reasons, to do evil that good may come. And again, rooting ourselves in scripture, um, Romans 3.8 is then quoted. There are those who say, this is St. Paul speaking, there are those who say, and why not do evil that good may come? Their condemnation is just. So St. Paul just kind of sweeps them away. Um, What a terrible thing. Um, And then as I phrase it, Kino from three, so this would be kind of the more popular modern phrasing and terminology, the end doesn't justify the means. So this principle is a pivotal difference between Catholic ethics and modern secular ethics. Um, so utilitarian ethics from John Stuart Mill onwards says that one, one should do whatever has the best consequences i.e. the end justifies the means that the means has no moral significance apart from the end so whatever will make everybody happy that's what we need to do that there aren't any principles to follow to get there but the only measure, the only principle is is everyone going to be happy at the end of it? Sam? Um, just to kind of clarify the stance, um, is it safe to say that while the end doesn't justify the means, that sometimes the consequences of our actions do play a role in our decision making? Definitely. Um, consequences would be part of circumstances. Um, 
in another way consequences are part of the intention because usually what we're intending is a happy consequence um, so it is it is definitely part of it but consequences aren't the only thing and that's basically the key point of today's lecture so that your utilitarian says, whatever is useful, that's okay. Whatever has a happy ending, that's okay. Whatever's got a good consequence, that's okay. Whereas we're saying, yes, we want a happy ending. Yes, we want good consequences. But we also want to do the right thing to get there. And there's actually a deeper point in which to do something wrong, to get something good out of it, actually never really works. Um, just a little clarification, but I've heard some people refer to this as the ends never justify the means. Is it more appropriate to say does not rather than never? Um, no, I think I'd be happy with never. Um, my hesitation is that it is all relevant. It's all part of the mix. But if it... If the means is evil, it's not justified. Um, so, so yes, actually thinking of the phrase, yeah, that, that, that's the saying the same thing. Any other initial thoughts, questions? So in the modern world, there are a lot of people out there that don't like tidy thinking, restricting thinking. So I can remember a hospital chaplain saying to me, she was an Anglican, um, that, well, sometimes doing the right thing means doing the wrong thing. Now, what on earth does that mean? Um, it's just a way of saying that, well, it's not as tidy as you Catholics think. Yeah. Wouldn't respond to that. I think I was trying to be polite, because um, it was that was maybe the most coherent part of the conversation. Um, so I don't remember the detail. I just remember thinking, "Be polite. Be polite." Um, or I've heard people say, with respect, "You can't make an omelet without breaking eggs." Um, Yeah. Karl Marx say that. Hmm? Karl Marx was the one that said that. Did he? Yeah. So you know, kill twenty-two million people, and we'll get a happy Russia. Yeah. <laughs> Break a few eggs. Now, what this means, I say here, is the means um, that we're saying, therefore, as Catholics, that this actually can be evaluated independently of the intention or at least sometimes it can be evaluated independently of the intention so that the object it might be good it might be evil or sometimes it might simply be neutral but the Catholic analysis says that the object actually we are able to evaluate 
even before we're thinking of the motive that we're doing it for. As I'll come on to in a bit, that means we've actually got to define what we mean by the object or the means in order to be able to make an evaluation of it. Okay, can I give you two examples now? So at the bottom of the page here. Um, I know it's an old TV series now, but I'm guessing a number of you remember the Jack Bauer on T the 24 series. Um, so it was one of those, because um, these detective things are full of these examples. Um, but this, anyway, let me read through the example. A terrorist demands that the US government give him the dead body of a chap called Ryan Chappelle who at that moment isn't dead. He's a living US government agent, one of the good guys. The terrorist says, give me his dead body within the hour or he'll explode atomic bombs. Now the government needs to buy time to track down the terrorist. So the US president thus commands our hero, Jack Bauer, to kill Chappelle. And Bauer does kill Chappelle. And, happy ending, the government eventually tracks down the terrorist before the explosions occur. So did the end justify the means? But the way it's presented in the TV show is it's a tough decision, tough decision, bang. Um, so the, the means we get to the end matters. And if you actually think about it, there's nothing in a logical consequence there that actually causes the good end. So who is actually responsible? The terrorist is the one that's responsible for blowing up the bomb or not. If you cooperate with him or not, you're then doing something evil, but he's the one responsible for what he's doing. Anyway, let's repeat that point in a minute when I look at so the classic example is the next one from St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, so, a woman's husband is held captive by a king, and the king will kill the man, her husband, unless the wife sleeps with the king. So there's a good end here. She sleeps with him to save the life of her husband, but a bad means, sleeping with a man who's not her husband. So does the end justify the means? Well, St. Thomas's tradition saying no. Um, but there's a whole group of people called proportionalists that Pope John Paul II condemned in his encyclical Veritatis Splendor who said the reverse. So I can remember um, the guy who taught us in the seminary back in, when I was in seminary saying, well, if she loves her husband, of course she's going to sleep with the king. Now let me pause on that example for a minute, or dwell on it for a minute. So, she slept with the king. Is the king going to release her husband? Well, actually he might not. He might actually, to keep his power over her, um, just say, well, actually another night. Um, she, her sleeping with the king doesn't actually cause her husband to be released. It's the king's decision that causes it. 
So scenarios like this are presented to us as if um, you're resp- that she's responsible for whether her husband lives or not. But no, it's the king who's responsible. What she's responsible for is whether she's going to sleep with the king. And, you know, this principle goes for a lot of things in life. We've got to think, what am I responsible for? Other people around me maybe doing crazy things? Maybe other priests around me are doing crazy things. Well, I'm responsible for the thing I'm doing. And just because somebody else wants a good end doesn't mean me doing the wrong thing to get there makes it okay. Do we understand the issues at work here? Well, this is kind of the first page description. And do we also understand why there are big consequences in this analysis? This, this does result as having hard decisions to say, okay, I know we want that happy ending, but I'm not gonna do this thing you want to get there. Just thinking of us going to the abortion clinic to pray tomorrow. Um, you know, in a sense, it's it's a happy ending for a, a woman to not have the complications that might come with having a child, or the financial burden to not want a financial burden. That's a happy ending. But does that mean you know anything's okay to get to that ending, or are there other ways you can get to that ending? like a doctrine. Okay, so let's turn over to page two. In the next couple of pages, we're going to try and think this through a bit more technically, a bit more specifically. So... Top of page two here. The moral evaluation of human acts. Um, Nick, can you read the... So the whole few lines at the top are a quotation from the Catechism. Do you mind reading that? The morality of. Uh, The morality of human acts depends on the object chosen and its operatus means of an act in itself. The end in view of the intention finis the circumstances of the action. The object, the intention, and the circumstances make up the sources of consecutive elements of the morality of human acts. For an act to be good, all three aspects must be good. For an act to be evil, only one aspect is to be evil. One flaw corrupts the integrity of the whole act. So, you're analyzing the action. Is it good? Is it bad? Well, there isn't just one bit of it that makes that decision, but all the bits. And as I say, gave that analogy of a poisoned meal. If one bit's poisoned, my meal is poisoned. And I don't just choose one aspect of the act, I choose all the aspects. So if one aspect is evil, I'm willing evil. Even if it's for a good end. 
So St. Thomas Aquinas in the tradition um, phrases it, as I put in bold there, evil results from any single defect, but good from the complete cause. So when we say an action's good, actually it's the good ending that kind of causes everything to get there. But if one bit is evil, then the whole thing is evil. Because your will wills the evil to get there. Max, can you read the examples from the catechism there in smaller print? A good intention, for example, that of helping one neighbor, you cannot make behavior that is intrinsically disordered, such as lying, calling the good or just. The end does not justify the means, thus a condemnation of an innocent person cannot be justified as a legitimate means of saving a nation. On the other hand, an added bad intention, says the vainglory, makes an act evil that in and of itself can be good, such as almsgiving. So obviously the two examples the catechism is using there are both from scripture. So the condemning of an innocent man to save the nation, well, this is obviously referring to what Caiaphas said about it's better that one man die for the sake of the nation. That didn't make it right. Almsgiving and vanity. So this was what our Lord was pointing to when people were trumpeting their almsgiving in the temple giving. Um, so giving is a good thing. But if you're doing your giving in order to look good out of vanity, then it becomes evil. So even though it's a good end, or rather, there the action is good, almsgiving, but the end is bad, so the whole becomes bad. I'm wondering, uh, so like in the justice system for the United States, plea bargains are quite popular. Mm. The, DA, you know, the DA offers a plea bargain. And, uh, that sounds from what we're saying, those we would consider unjust and uh, immoral. But is that fair? Um, why would it be unjust to plea bargain? Well, it's not like you're lessening the sentence based on if they give you information. So really you're giving a, I guess you're thinking about the, the end justifying the means, right? I'm able to get this guy to tell us something that we want to hear, I'll reduce your sentence. That seems like you're uh, an example of the end justifying means. And you're giving a lesser sentence. Okay, and in that case, so um, I've used a word a couple times that have not said it very clearly. Intrinsically evil. Now, not everything that is evil is intrinsically evil. So there are some things that are evil just because of the consequences or just because of the circumstances or that the packaging makes it evil, but the act itself isn't. So the sentence that's given in a court isn't, isn't something that's a matter of intrinsic evil because there's a whole bunch of things that go into sentencing. Whereas condemning a man you know to be innocent, that would actually be an example in the tradition of an intrinsically evil act. But the degree of punishment you attach to a crime, there's so many factors in that, it's not a matter of being intrinsically evil. 
Does that answer the question in part at least? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it clarifies what you're going for, though. I mean, I'm still not satisfied with that answer, especially if I'm being honest. Okay. Um, being a lawyer is one of those things that um, I can look at the principles and say that it's a good thing to do, be a lawyer, but there's a lot of potential in all those legal bargainings to be dishonest, to be compromising in all kinds of principles. But the But a lot of those things in the legal process aren't a matter of intrinsic evil. So there would be a circumstance that would make it permissible. Let's say you're an investigator and you've been tracking this guy down for some time. You hear some of the plans he's going to conduct. He's going to set out this plan. And, but he hasn't actually done anything just yet. But for some time he's been planning and he has all the things scoped out. He hasn't actually done anything. Do you, would you say it would be justified to arrest a man before the evil was committed, even though it hasn't actually been committed yet? Um, we're getting our head ahead of ourselves in terms of bringing in other principles here. Um, I think when we look at just war and self-defense, we'll be kind of touching on what you're saying. Um, with respect to self-defense, if I've got a gun pointed at you, you don't need to wait until after I've shot um, to, to defend yourself. Um, so in a similar way, the police can intervene before something, but they need to have evidence that something is evil is being planned. This is a brief answer. Any other comments, questions? Okay, let's go back to my notes here. So, in bold, towards the bottom of the page, I say, why? Why does one evil part vitiate, corrupt the whole? An act is only a human act in as much as it emanates from the will, enlightened by reason. So I contrast um, the acts of a human, like falling over, as opposed to a properly human act choosing to fall over. So it's when our will engages that we actually have what we call a human action, something you're choosing, something that therefore is capable of being moral. I say an act is only called moral when it is willed, right? when it is therefore a human act. An act is morally evil in as much as the will wills evil. So that's the key point in that analysis. If your will chooses evil, that's what we mean by moral evil. That the will bears not only on the end, but also on the means to the end. So therefore both are sources of the morality of an action. If the will chooses an evil object, means, then the will chooses evil. It is intending 
even if it's intending a good end. It's intending an evil means for a good end. So then, quoting the Catechism, the object of the choice can by itself vitiate an act in its entirety. There are some concrete acts, such as fornication, that it is always wrong to choose, because choosing them entails a disorder of the will that is a moral evil. And the last thing I put on that page, by doing evil, you become an evildoer. Our action reflexively affects our character. Now that's, in a sense, only one part of the mix, but there are a lot of people, you know, when you're talking to parishioners, that actually that part of the analysis makes sense to them. That they realise, if I do this, I change what I am. I become an evildoer. I've corrupted myself by doing that. And that's part of why it's wrong to do evil. Wrong for your will to be willing evil. It changes you. It makes you evil. Okay, page three. So, now I want to be a little more precise in defining what we talk about when we refer to the means or, more technically, the object of an action. So basically, this whole analysis is saying there are some means, there are some objects that you can never do, some objects that have an evil in them that means you can simply never do them. Well, what is the object the means to the end, sometimes called the proximate end, to the final end. A more precise definition. So say definitions are typically a matter of philosophy rather than doctrine. That said, the church sometimes condemns certain definitions as inadequate and praises some definitions as apt. So don't know if you've done this in transubstantiation, that when you talk about the real presence, or the church talks about the real presence, at the Council of Trent, the church endorsed the language of transubstantiation, saying that this is an apt term to describe what happens. But actually that's a very philosophical term. What the church teaches is the real presence. And the church says the language of transubstantiation fittingly describes what happens. So we just need to be slightly wary when we use philosophy that the church is bigger than philosophy. Philosophy is always a tool for us to explain our doctrine, but our doctrine itself is bigger than philosophy itself. Um, and one of the reasons this is important is that as the centuries go by, philosophy changes, the use of terms change, so that the language used to articulate the doctrine in one century might suddenly not seem to make sense in the next century.
because people are using words differently. Yeah. So, a definition of the object is a matter of philosophy rather than doctrine. Now that said, what would be or might be a suitable definition? Um, so I say they're in bold. And uh, here I'm giving a definition from William May, which is used by a number of theologians contemporarily. He says, the object is a material event specified by a good and then grasped and willed by the agent as a means. Then I give a series of examples. So, a good object, the marriage act. Sexual intercourse, that's the material event with your spouse. So in order to describe it, you need that second bit of the description, the good. A bad object, adultery. Sexual intercourse, the material event, with somebody else's spouse. That's the thing clarifying it. Yeah. Another bad object, rape. Sexual intercourse, the material event, against the will of the other. That's the specification. The bad object of theft. Taking another's property, the material event, against the reasonable will of the owner. A bad object, murder. Killing somebody, the material event, in jealousy. That would be one way of murdering. There would be lots of motives in murdering. But simply killing someone isn't murder. You need to specify it somehow to indicate that it's murder. Then I give... a. Good object of self-defense. Um, killing somebody, the material event, in self-defense. That makes it a different action from the material event of killing somebody in jealousy. The bad object of murder, again, maybe more generally phrased, killing somebody, the material event, without due cause. Now, what holds all of those examples together is it's never enough just to describe the material event. You always need an additional specification in order to say we've described it enough to be able to say whether it's good or evil. Whereas otherwise, to simply say sexual intercourse, well, you've not said enough described enough to know whether it's good or bad or whatever. So, John Paul II, in Veritas Suspender, taught that there are acts which, in the Church's moral tradition, have been termed intrinsically evil. Intrinsic meaning in the thing itself. There's an evil in the thing itself. They are such always and per se, in other words, on account of their very object, and quite apart from the ulterior intentions of the one acting in the circumstances. And he taught with that that the primary source of the morality of the act is the object. And what does he mean by primary? Well, it's the first thing you're choosing in the process of action. You choose the means to get to the end. So it's primary in the um, sources of morality. So, stepping back a bit, what am I saying on that whole page? What I'm saying is, if we're going to say 
that something can never be done, that something is an intrinsically evil act, we've got to describe it completely enough to be able to say that. That if you don't describe it completely enough, you've kind of not got anything to pass a judgment on. So a material event specified with a good or an evil. Okay, next page. I'm only going to comment on this briefly. I think I've already made this point. So the end, that's the cause of the whole action. So therefore the end is the cause of the goodness of the act, if the act is good. Um, so then I give the example, giving to the poor a good action, but if it's done for vanity, then the end is evil and the whole act becomes evil. If it's done for charity, then the end is good and the whole act is good. So it's not just enough that the object be good. You need to be doing it for a good reason, for a good end, a good intention. And you've done your philosophy, form and matter. This is one way of thinking of the relationship between object and end. You cannot put a form into anything. You got to put a form into the right type of matter. So if you have the form of a chair, you cannot put that into jello. Yes, if you put the form of chair into jello, you don't have a chair. Yes. So Aristotle says matter has to be proportioned to the form. In the same way that the object has to be proportioned to the end. So you've got a good end, you need a good means proportionate to that end, to get you to that end. Otherwise, you're actually not really going to get there. Okay, more briefly, I've actually filled a whole page on page five, but I'm not going to go through this in detail, other than to note... Um, circumstances. So, um, Sam, can you read that quotation from the Catechism at the top of the page? The circumstances, including the consequences, are secondary elements of the moral act. They contribute to increasingly or diminishing the moral goodness or evil of the human acts. For example, the amount of theft. They can also diminish or increase the agent's responsibility acting out of the fear of death. Circumstances of themselves cannot change the moral quality of the acts themselves. They can make neither good nor right an action that is in itself evil. So as the catechism is using the term circumstances, it's saying it can change your degree of guilt. So why did you do that wrong thing? You did it out of fear. So that changes how guilty you are. Or you did something that was wrong, but it was only about a small thing. And therefore, that changes the degree of guilt. So theft is wrong, but stealing an apple is not as significant as robbing a bank. 
together both theft um, the circumstance makes a big difference to the moral analysis but the circumstance doesn't change a good act into an evil act what rather doesn't change an evil object into a good object um, but it could be a circumstance actually makes the whole thing inappropriate evil Okay, now I asked you all to read that passage, this article here. Could we spend 10 minutes talking through this? So as a teacher, I'm always looking for a good short piece that kind of puts everything together. This is a relatively short article, um, but that's commenting on a big topic. Um, any comments? Was it dense and unreadable? Was it... Did you pick up the significance of the, the martyrs there? So he's, he's commenting um, that back in the 1990s, there were people criticizing the martyrs. You know, those inflexible, rigid early Christians um, insisting on dying for Jesus. Um, they should have just compromised. Done the wrong thing, but for a good end. Whereas as Christians, what the martyrs show us, because the church has praised the martyrs in every century, is that actually this is what our Christian faith holds to, that it's right that there are some things we simply refuse to do, even if it means we're going to die for it. Uh, sorry, Nick had his hand up first. Oh, I was just going to say, I find it very insightful where he was able to separate There's a couple of things. I, when he talks about shame as being a form of reverence, that's very interesting. Mm. You talk to especially today, like shame is a bad kind of thing, but it actually builds a sort of fear of God and respect for Him. Um, that was one thing I like. There was another part in here where uh, the martyrs, where he says, like they weren't too worried about the future of the church. They knew that at the present moment, that's what was being asked of them to serve. 
to give up their life in that manner, and that's going to hold the integrity, the continuity of the church, because that's been the backbone, it's that faith that precisely has guided them to that moment. And lastly, the, actually the last quote was, he said it earlier, I think, but we ended, however, everything becomes unbearable once a person abandons the nature and does what is not in accordance with it. It suffocates a person's very life and function within himself or society. Yeah, yeah I, I found that a really powerful quote as well. We all heard the phrase, martyrdom is a specific grace. So we shouldn't go out there seeking martyrdom. That there are people God gives the strength of martyrdom to. We shouldn't all be kind of looking for it. So when we look at the, you know, the many, so in, in England, my own country, St. Thomas More was a, a, quite an interesting example of that, if you know his history, in that he tried to do everything he could to satisfy the king. That the, to this document the king was demanding that he sign that in its detail renounced the pope and put the king in the place of the pope and Thomas More was looking is there a way I can say these words and still not be denying God that he, he didn't just he wasn't just satisfied I'm going to make a public statement and die um so that martyrdom shouldn't be just an act of stupid foolishness. Um, our English martyrdom history is recent enough. Um, I'm not sure of examples in the Roman era, but we've got a number of cases of people that did renounce the faith, but then af under torture, but then afterwards reverted back to the Lord. And I think that's important to bear in mind as well, that you know, doing something wrong, we can repent of it and come back to the right thing afterwards. Um, so a number of those who the church in England celebrates as martyrs, at one stage in their torture, did renounce the truth. Um, Father, have you seen the movie um, Silence? Yeah. I think one of the priests apostatizes and steps on the image. And then he gets married, I think. But then at the end, he has like a little crucifix put there. I don't remember correctly. Um, did he help hold on to his faith, or he just didn't remember the story too well? I think it's probably better not to remember that story too well. Um, <laughs> in that it's. 
I think it gives a, a model of lots of things that are simply bad Catholic theology. So in the film, so the book that it's based on Endo, but by a chap called Endo, um, is problematic in itself, but it's nowhere near as problematic as the film. Where in the film, it has Jesus appearing and telling the guy, renounce me, I, you know, um, which is actually the very opposite of what Jesus says in the Gospels. Uh, he who denies me, I will deny before the Father. Um, but, you know, Hollywood doesn't really care about the detail of what's in the Gospels. Um, Graham Greene's novel, The Power and the Glory, I don't know how many of you have read that, um, is, I think, a more Catholic version of that same packaging. I read that as a teenager. It had a profound impact on me. Um, but there you have a priest who is... He's a bad priest. You know, he's got um, a mistress, a child. He's um, a drunkard. Uh, he's a bad priest. But he's arrested, um, and he's faced with that ultimate choice. Is he going to deny the Lord or not, and he dies a good death. Back to the article. Um, any other comments? I'm not sure anyone's picked up explicitly this thing he has about your life is an act of worship. So that, so that the choice to do good or good evil is kind of a reverence to God. My life, you know, how does scripture put it? Live your lives as a, a living sacrifice to the Lord. So whether I do good, whether I do evil, this is what I'm offering to the Lord. So all kinds of things the consequences, it's not for me to figure out what the consequences are. Those are in the hands of God. Um, I will do the right thing, and that will be a life of worship to God. It's interesting, the article quite deliberately focuses its analysis, quoting not from the Bible, but quoting from Greek philosophers. Trying, I think, with that to make the point, this isn't just a thing Christians say or Catholics say. So it might seem like at this moment in history, we're the only ones saying this. Um, but actually the ancient philosophers, they saw this as well. Life itself becomes unbearable once a person abandons his nature and does what is not in accordance with it. Okay, let's put that aside for now then. Um, Now I want us to shift focus to um, 
to a more difficult application of this. So I've referred a few times to this phrase, intrinsically evil acts. There are some things that we may never do, even for a good end. Um, well, there are also other things where there's, it's a bit more complicated. Something you're being asked to do, asked to do isn't intrinsically evil, but it has two effects, a good effect and a bad effect. Well, can you do it or not? Yeah, so this is what's called the, the principle of double effect. And this is your next assignment. So let's turn to page six of my notes here. Um, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to start by describing the principles, then I'm going to go through a few examples. And like lots of things, an example makes it much easier to understand what's being said. So page six, the principle of double effects. PDE is how it's often abbreviated. And the key point is foreseeing a bad outcome isn't the same thing as intending it. So if I foresee that someone's going to fail my exam, that doesn't mean I intend it. Yes. The principle of double effect indicates that we can sometimes foresee evil without intending it. I say, well, he did not name the principle as such. St. Thomas Aquinas is credited with introducing the principle of double effect to moral theology. He articulated the PD in his discussion of the permissibility of killing in self-defense. So the principle deals with the scenario in which one action will have two effects, a good effect and an evil effect. Not just one effect, two effects. Well, how can you judge whether that action is permitted? Well, St. Thomas gives four conditions, um, and I've summarised them here. One. The action contemplated, i.e. the thing you're doing, must be in itself either morally good or morally indifferent. So if the action you're doing is actually evil, well then it's out of the question to begin with. So the action itself either is neutral or good. Second, the bad effect must not be directly intended, i.e. if you could the agent would prefer to obtain the good effect without the evil effect. Third, the good effect must not be a direct causal result of the bad effect. And fourth, the act itself must be proportionate to the end intended and not have effects beyond what is proportionate to that end. So have you all heard the phrase using a sledgehammer to crack a walnut. Do you use that in this country? Yes. So that's not proportionate to use a sledgehammer to crack a walnut. So what you're trying to do, it has to be proportionate. Okay, examples to explain what we're talking about here. First example, a medical example. A pregnant woman being treated for cancer of the uterus with chemotherapy. 
So now what, what the issue here is that the child's going to die. She's going to die from the cancer. If she has the chemotherapy, the baby's going to die. Now, if the chemotherapy is targeted at the mother, but has the side effect of killing the child in the womb, then the analysis becomes this. One, the action of the chemotherapy itself is morally good. The death of the child isn't intended. Third, the death of the child doesn't cause the cancer to be cured. Note also, the chemotherapy is targeted at the mother's cancer. It's not targeted at the child. And fourth, the treatment is proportionate because it's a fatal illness in cancer. I note, however, that such cancer treatments for pregnant women are increasingly targeted in such a specific manner that actually the child doesn't face the risk that would have been the case in earlier medical treatments. So this kind of serves as an example, but it doesn't, it's much as common now. So you're saying that if a mom can get the chemo and kill the child, it seems, doesn't Thomas Aquinas in like the order that we should love things say, love God first, then our own souls and others, and then our own like physical bodies. Like it seems like it kind of switches that. Um, there are examples of saints who've been canonized be women because they chose to let the child live even at the risk of their own life but um, the death of the child is a side effect not a direct cause it seems like it follows that And so one of the things with the principle of double effect is we do know the evil effect is coming. We're not surprised by it. So that's why this whole principle is involved. You know there's going to be an evil effect. It isn't the mother killing the child. It's the mother taking the treatment, knowing it has the side effect of the likely or even certain death of the child. I was just going to add that wouldn't this go back to our last uh, class we're talking about consciousness and wouldn't it be the mother's consciousness here to decide whether or not this is a good decision or not so she's thinking about it as you know well I'd rather be healed and have the baby die wouldn't that now we be crossing into something really evil conscience doesn't change whether it's right or wrong. Contrast is just our knowledge of whether it's right or wrong. Okay. So it's kind of risking confusing the issue. So today, in a sense, we're looking at is it right or wrong? 
whether you as an individual know it's right or wrong and make the judgment in your conscience, that's a kind of secondary bit of the processing. You said the virtue of like the saints who have been canonized for that kind of dying for it. It is a dying for another person. So couldn't that, wouldn't that, like that the church honors that show that like the virtuous thing to do is to to die? We're not morally required to be heroes. The definition of heroic virtue is that it is heroic. This and this is important as a priest in that sometimes we need to be sure that what we're, in a sense, imposing on people isn't heroism, but is the bottom line, what is good or e what is evil, or to avoid evil. So encourage virtue, but you can't uh, heroic virtue, but you can't require people to be heroic. Seems like heroic virtue is doing what God is asking of you. So like the, like some the specific masters. grace of martyrdom yep. might be being asked of this person. So like the heroic virtue for that would be to die. Heroic virtue for someone who just like God's calling to live an ordinary life, like uh, a prayer and a work. Yes, so heroic virtue um, does look different in different people, different circumstances. The, the key thing in this analysis is the death of the child is a side effect, not an intended effect. That the action itself is chemotherapy. Let me give a couple more examples to clarify, okay? Um, so, the second example on that page is this is actually the example from St. Thomas Aquinas himself. So, somewhat curiously, the scenario in which St. Thomas developed this principle is actually a more tenuous application of it. Tenuous because the first condition seems to be something of a stretch. I, is it reasonable to describe the act in itself as saving your life? So, St. Thomas's example, killing in self-defense. In the scenario envisaged, One's own life could not have been saved by a less drastic means of defense. That fact renders the analysis, one, the act in itself is described as saving one's own life. Two, the bad effect is killing the assailant, and that isn't directly intended. Three, the death of the assailant is not the direct cause of one's own life being saved. Fourth, the violence used that results in the death of the assailant is proportionate to saving one's own life if less violence would not suffice. So what is it that saves your life? It's your attacker being incapacitated. That's what saves your life. He attacks you with a knife, you incapacitate him, and you are saved. Now, if you can incapacitate him by breaking his legs, but you, got, you didn't like him anyway, and so you kill him, well, then that's just not justified. It's not proportionate. 
You can use force necessary to incapacitate him. And sometimes that includes lethal force, which is proportionate because your life is being threatened. But the death of your assailant isn't what saves you, it's his being incapacitated that saves you. And to throw into the mix again, if you didn't like him to begin with, and this was just an excuse to kill him, then actually all of this becomes irrelevant, because really, it's just an excuse to kill him. So the act itself isn't morally problematic, it's saving your life. His death is not intended, and his death doesn't cause your life being saved, it's his incapacitation that saves you. And because it is a matter of life and death, therefore it is a proportionate action. Okay, third example, so next page. Okay, so here we have another medical example, top of page seven. Abortion as a means. Now I say this is um, an example of a test that fails the principle of double effect. The, the principle of double effect analyzes it and says, actually, no, you may not do that. So here, a woman has a health risk due to her pregnancy. So one of the most common cases is she might have a, a blood pressure condition. Increasing pregnancy is going to increase the blood pressure complications and she will be in a state of lethal risk. So, abortion is proposed as the means to cure her. Now, how do we analyse that? Well, first, the act in itself is abortion, which is intrinsically evil. So the procedure therefore fails the first condition. Second, the death of the child is intended as a chosen means. Thus the procedure fails the second condition. And possibly most significant, third, the death of the child is the means to the health of the mother. I.e. the evil effect is the cause of the good effect. Thus the proposed procedure fails the third condition of the principle of double effect. Fourth, I say, however, the means probably could have been seen as proportionate if the proposed treatment didn't fail the other three conditions. So actually, there is a level of proportion. Life is at stake here. But because of the rest of the analysis, the fourth, proposal, fourth condition becomes irrelevant. So I've got a, a footnote there, footnote 17, um, Bishop Olmsted in Arizona. Um, so actually, this is 10 years ago now, but he, there was a very public case where he made a public statement about the local hospital um, on this very scenario, um, saying that the end doesn't justify the means. So even to save the life of the mother, you can't have a direct abortion. that would be different from a treatment that has a side effect where the child dies. Uh, yeah, real quick, I guess. Uh, there are events like uh, in 
next topic of pregnancy where like depending on how you go in and heal, I guess the condition, I guess is the best way to put it, then it is morally permissible to to do that, correct? Yeah. Okay, so you know how good my artwork is. Um, this is a woman's anatomy here. Um, so in the fallopian tube, um, you end up with a, a fertilized ovum that embeds implants in the tube. Um, and if it continues to develop there, the mother, it will rupture, and the mother and child will both die. So this is what's called an ectopic pregnancy. The tube will gradually increase um, and will rupture and there will be a, a horrible um, infection and, and the mother will die. So the moral analysis says we treat that as, because of ha what the cause of the problem will be, as a diseased organ and we can remove the diseased organ. And we know that the child there will die as the diseased organ is removed. But we can remove a diseased organ even knowing it will have the side effect of the death of the child there. So that would be the, the Catholic analysis, principle double effect analysis of how to treat that. Now, as medicine's got more precise, we can actually remove a much smaller bit as a diseased organ rather than the whole of that half, so that actually the effect on the woman is much less significant in the long term. But you're removing a diseased organ or a part of a diseased organ is how the analysis views it, even though you know it will result in that. Yeah. But if I, so if I went in and I did a dilation and extraction on the woman, then that would not, not be more permissible. Exactly, because then you are directly attacking the child, not attacking the organ that the child is within. And sometimes these small differences are a big difference. Are you treating the mother with a side effect on the child, or are you attacking the life of the child directly? Okay, so... Your next paper is on the principle of double effect. Um, I've given you to assist you with that, um, an article that I put in your mailboxes, yes, on double effect. Um, but my lecture notes should be enough for you to do the analysis. Basically, all you need to do is go through those four points of the condition, explain them, apply them, and that's your paper. All right, let's close in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. May the divine assistance remain always with us, the souls of the faithful.